Thank you, Genevieve. It's a good thing for superintendent ministers to preach to themselves at least once a year. So uh, I'll preach to myself this morning. If it includes anybody else at all, that's absolutely fine. But that's not permission to go off home yet. Parables. This is a parable of Jesus. Let's just think about parables for a minute. Uh, first of all, parables, we're told by the experts, are meant to draw you in. Uh, an American theologian, and it became quite a popular thing uh, around the world for experts in homiletics. Joanna's just finished her doctorate in things like that. Uh, very often used to uh, not just lecture about a parable, but then they'd stop and they'd say to the class, okay, so Jesus and the paralyzed man, uh, so Jesus is here, and the paralyzed man is here, and the friends through the roof are there. Now go and stand with the group of characters that you identify with most, and the class will move, and they'll stand, and then they'll start talking to one another about what it feels like to be in the story. That's exactly what a parable is meant to do. It's meant to draw you in, and no doubt, as this parable was first told by Jesus to whoever was listening to him at this time, that's the effect it had. Secondly, parables, we're told by the experts, usually contain stark contrasts. They're meant to kind of shock you. There's the sheep, and there's the goats. There's the wise, there's the foolish. And they very often contain some kind of surprise that you weren't quite expecting, a bit like a sort of ancient biblical thriller, a sting in the tail. This Samaritan helps this Jew. What? Well, what's the contrast here in this parable? The fact that some have worked a whole day, which we think was 11 or 12 hours, and they therefore deserve a whole day's pay. Others have worked around about one hour, and therefore pro rata deserve very little, and they begin to be talked about at the end of the parable as the first and the last. The surprise, of course, is in the payment. The last go first, queuing up at the end of a day to be paid the day's work, and they receive a day's pay for an hour's work. As they say in Yorkshire, it's not a bad job if you can get it. There's interest up the line of the workers by those who have worked all day. If they're getting that, I wonder what we'll get. And as they move nearer and nearer to the front of the line, they realize that they're getting the same, one denarius. So they do what human beings do in that situation, and they form a union. Get the owner, get the owner. So the owner comes, and the spokesperson says, uh, I want to talk with you. Uh, yes. Uh, what's the problem? It's the wages. Uh-huh, uh, and... and, and what did I promise I'd give you? A full day's work for a full day's pay. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, and what have you received? A full day's work for a full day's pay, but that's not the... No, no, just a minute. What's the problem? It's them. They've worked just one hour, and you've paid them a full day's wage. And why is that a problem to you? Did I not pay you what I promised you? Yeah, 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 yes, you did. But, and am I not free to do 
what I like with my own. Yes, of course you are, but, 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 and am I not free to pay him according to need rather than deserving? What, or are you jealous because I am generous? You see, some scholars believe that the one hallmark of a certain group of parables is that however complicated the story, they only have one point to make. And as far as I'm concerned, the line, the one point of this very human story is not about workers or wages or whinging. The one point is that this is a parable about God's extravagant generosity. It indicates a God who is essentially and incurably generous. A God who can't help but be full of grace. Now think for a moment. That's actually why any of us are here at all. We're here because of God's grace. Because God has been like that with us when we least deserved it. That's why there'd be so many wonderful stories for us to share and we perhaps ought to be more open with one another about sharing those stories of extravagant, generous grace that came breaking into our lives when we least deserved it and we suddenly got taken up by the fact that God had blessed us and included us and enriched us and enabled us and equipped us. Stories about God's love or Christ's power or God's patience with us when we least deserved it. Now, if God is incurably generous, if that's what God is like, then what are the people like who say they believe in him and say they want to follow him? It means, doesn't it, that our own Christian faith needs to be characterized by extravagant generosity that reminds people of God. And we have to ask ourselves, what does characterize our Christian living? Desperation sometimes, bewilderment, empire building, pride, how often would it be that the first thing that people see in followers of Christ is extravagant, generous love? What kind of people do people see when they encounter those who claim to follow Christ? It means, doesn't it, if God's like that, that extravagant generosity must shape and fill the message of the church. When we seem overcome by life, when the life of the world and its needs and its sickness and its suffering seem to overwhelm us, then whatever else extravagant generous grace tells us is that it is the one great thing that is greater than all the needs of humankind. 
the desire of God to meet the needs of humankind on a cross if necessary. It means, doesn't it, that we're often called to put the offer of the gospel before its demands. I taught uh, university courses for 12 years and uh, in that time I taught about 350 people master's degrees in various things and it took a, a, a young woman who finished the course and she was being asked about the course that she'd just graduated in by somebody else. It was a degree in evangelism studies. And somebody said, so what have you been learning for the last two years? And I thought, oh, don't ask that question of a new graduate. She'll bore you silly. She'll ne nearly be as boring as that lecturer that she has. And she said this. It's about recognizing that the offer of the gospel always becomes before the demand of the gospel. It's recognizing that the offer of the gospel always comes before the demand of the gospel. Because extravagant generosity is shot through with grace. By its very nature, it acts first graciously and then asks questions afterwards. It always runs the risk of being misunderstood. It always runs the risk of being castigated or rejected. That's the way of it. The offer isn't conditional upon acceptance. It's offered anyway. And I wonder, is that characteristic of the way in which we live our lives out as gospel people? That people hear the offer before they hear the demand. They receive grace before they realize anything about the cost of grace. But... I digress, let's return to the parable and apply it to each of us. You see, the thing about extravagant generosity, are you jealous because I am generous? The thing about that is, it's just not fair. How many of us, when we read this parable, feel its essential unfairness how many of us share a little bit in the hurt and the annoyance and the moodiness and the anger of those who've been working all day? And you say to yourself, actually, if I was at the back of the queue, I'd be there saying, I wonder what I'm going to get. And when I get just the same as him, I'm a bit, why? Now, here's the whammy. In Matthew's Gospel... All the experts are agreed that whenever Matthew talks about the vineyard and unmistakably when he talks about a vineyard in this parable, he's actually talking about the nature of Christ's church. Didn't call it church there, but the followers of Christ gathered together. So for vineyard, read congregation. So a man has a congregation. God has a congregation. And in it, there are three groups of workers. And following the example of that American theologian, as we go through the three groups, 
I invite myself and I invite you, whereabouts, which group do I stand in in this congregation? The first group were promised, if you look at the text, the usual wage. And they were presumably content with that, or at the very least accepted that, because that's why they're working. There's no suggestion throughout the whole of the story that they were in the least dissatisfied until those hired late in the day go to the front of the queue. Perhaps Matthew had in mind this group brought into God's vineyard early in life or early in the prime of life. Set on by the master, we, be, we received Christ when we were eight or we were 11. And by the time we were 13, we were using, leading Bible studies and leading prayers in church. And the years have gone on and we're 20 and we're 30 and we're 60 and we're 70 and we're 80. And we've borne the heat of the day. Do you know, we've probably said the Lord's Prayer probably about 13,000 times. Surely God owes us something for that. Perhaps it massages our spirits to recall D.L. Moody's, the very famous American evangelist of the early 20th century, D.L. Moody's statement, which I've used in another sermon. Last night he wrote, three and a half people came forward to commit themselves to Christ. And you had to understand that uh, what Dwight Moody was talking about was that the three were young enough to give their life and the half had already used a half the life so they could only give half a life so three and a half people gave their lives to the Lord. God says to us, especially we who have worked, if you like, all the long day in the church, Are you jealous because I'm generous? And sometimes we, even clergy, look round at the resources that others have or the time that they have on their hands or their early retirement plans and everything that seems to be going for them as you set off to church while they set off on another holiday and it's the easiest thing in the world to say, actually, yeah, I think I, think I might be. The second group were promised, quote, a fair wage. Look at the text. The parable gives no sense that they're grasping for more or there was any negotiating done or any indication that they expected the generosity that they received when they were halfway up the queue to receive their daily wage. They don't know what they are to receive. The implication is that it will be okay, that it will be what you normally get for working half a day. And using Matthew's image that the vineyard is actually the church and its congregation, perhaps these are the people who at some stage of active life are called by Christ and they enter the church and they work in the vineyard and they often bring such a freshness and a commitment of making up for time lost a profound sense of time wasted. Here I am, I'm 44. I've spent 24 years doing that and I realize it's all junk and I turn to Christ and I now need to do this. 
the effect upon those who have been in the church all their lives is sometimes dramatically unchristian. Do you know, they swan, wait, listen to this, they swan into our church with their nice cars and their previous lives. They arrive in our fellowship and give a vibrant testimony and steal all the limelight. You can't shut them up. And for those who have been in the vineyard all their lives, accepting them into the vineyard and not trying to tell them that they can't dig there because we've already dug there and tried it, it doesn't work. We criticize them for using someone else's tools or even new tools. You want to do that job? You have to wait till three people die first. Make no mistake, we who have been in the vineyard an awful long time sometimes guard our ministries and our churches and our fellowships and our roles very jealously. And in doing so, we reject the extravagant generosity by fencing the gospel and putting conditions on those who would come into the vineyard that God, in the first instance, never put upon us. And it's often done for the most sensible of motives. They don't understand the way we do it. When they've done their 10-year apprenticeship, they can start to take a place in the church council. Whoa. Gosh, we suddenly become Pharisees. Are you jealous? Because I'm generous, says the owner of the vineyard. The third group, the people who came in last of all about an hour before dark, were actually promised nothing much at all. In fact, if you look at the text, there's not a whiff of what they're going to receive at all. Any reward, any payment was presumably left up to the generosity of the master. And there's almost a sense in which some of them are working just to demonstrate to the master that they're actually there. So the day after, they might be at the front of the queue, not the back of the queue. They may not have worked long, but they worked as long as they could and they did what the master asked because when the light goes down in an age before electricity, that's when the work ends. Perhaps this group are the group who very late in the day, sometimes even on their deathbed, join the workers in the vineyard. I heard someone speaking about this some time ago and it riled me so much it's finished up in this sermon. This man was talking about waiting for the last possible moment before committing themselves to Christ in order, he said, to get the best of both worlds. And I thought to myself, whoa, just hang on a minute. Such jealousy. You see, there's one more thing. I should have told you earlier, but I forgot. There's one more thing that Experts tell you parables are meant to do. And that thing is that they're meant to judge us. It's what they do. They evoke in us a response. And if you like, we judge ourselves by the way we respond to what the truth of the parable is. This parable judges me. The first become the last because they're robbed of grace. 
They're robbed of a sense of extravagant generosity. They're robbed by their complaints and their less than generous thoughts about other people in the vineyard who don't seem to have put the shift in, who seem brighter lights, who seem to have everything sorted out as you struggle in the morass. How often churches finish up being harder and more judgmental and more unforgiving and more critical and more jealous of those in church alongside them than anybody else in the world. And God must weep. Extravagant generosity isn't fair. But I ask us this. Who here really would like God to deal with them fairly. That is, as, as you deserve. Not me. Complete spiritual wimp. Lord, for goodness sake, don't deal with me fairly. Deal with me graciously. And many of us need to hear this because actually, in spite of all our rhetoric about the church and its grandeur and its glory, it's hard to work in the vineyard for many years and remain gracious about it. Some of us don't know that yet and some of us sadly will come to know it. Interestingly, there was a Jewish rabbinic parable at the same time as Jesus' parable was doing the rounds. It's one of the things we know about parables. Jesus wasn't the only person telling them. All sorts of people told parables. And this one was by a Jewish rabbi who told virtually the same slot, uh, plot. Uh, a man works one hour and is paid as much as those who've worked all day. But it's at this point near the end that the rabbinic parable goes in a different direction to the parable of Jesus. Because in the rabbinic version, when the aggrieved workmen protest that they haven't received any more than those people who've only worked for one hour, the owner of the vineyard turns around and says that this lot have done more good work in an hour than you lot have done in the last of the 12. <laughs> Isn't it funny how rabbinic Judaism and Methodism have so much in common? <laughs> but you see the crucial difference. That parable, with that ending, belongs to merit. The gospel parable of Jesus belongs to incurable grace. The first who will become the last move through a transition which some of us might recognize. And if we begin to recognize it, then I'm doing my job this morning... Because in recognizing it, we might take the first steps to engage with it and address it. We begin with a deep sense of gratitude to the master. Caught up by nearly everything we've sung this morning. And then we end up as if the master owes us a living. We begin by offering self and we end up simply offering duty and service. We begin saying every breath that we've got 
is yours, praise the Lord. And we end up saying, well, you can have that hour on Wednesday. I'm not doing anything else. This parable reminds us that any good work we are able to perform, any ministry to which we've been called, any office and duty that we hold in the church is done by God through us and for God's glory, not ours. So how does extravagant generosity find us this morning? Service but no real giving of self anymore. Jealous of others or zealous for God still. Too forgetful of how you ever came to be here at all because of God's grace. You see, the master, who is God in the parable, says to the first who are about to become last, are you jealous because I'm generous? And all workers in the vineyard need to remember from time to time just who is who and what is what. There's no doubt that God can do what God likes with what God owns. Let's thank God that God still chooses to be incurably generous with it and with us. Because in the end, when all our huffing and puffing and protesting is done, it's God's incurable goodness that will take us home. Amen.